and welcome to this week's episode of I Was Gonna Podcast. This week's guest is Michael Bergson, Glaswegian entrepreneur and owner of Bucks Bar and Thundercat. Good morning, Michael. Thanks for joining us here in the I Was Gonna Podcast. It's much appreciated that you spent some time with us this morning just to have a chat about yourself and uh, really looking forward to asking you some questions. But the first question that we've got to ask is a question that uh, Callum and I really, every time I say this, we want to get rid of this first question, but unfortunately the pandemic isn't going away. So the first question that we ask everybody is, uh, how have you found this unusual time and what have you been doing to manage to keep yourself busy? Well, we, uh, I'll, I'll be honest, I mean, I, I had a great time the first four weeks of this pandemic. You know, see that see that thing of just waking up with nothing to think about? Now, even when I'm on holiday, I'll be picking up, we've got, we've got restaurants, bars, I'll be picking up an email about something or, you know, I'll be letting know, they'll let me know if a chef's walked out or if a cooker's broken down or if, uh, you know, we get a bad review, I'll get an alert on my phone. If we get a good review, I'll get an alert on my phone. And this was just nothing, nothing for four weeks where we just had like radio silence right across the board. So it was a nerve wracking time. Obviously, we actually shut down we, we made the decision the day before the lockdown to close down because a few of us uh, came down with COVID, myself included. And uh, we just made the decision then. We said, look, that's it. It's got in the team. We have to shut the restaurant. So we actually made, I think the, 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 we, were, we were two days before the lockdown, we made that decision. So we were winding down. And then, as you say, nothing was happening. It was a nerve wracking time. We had, we'd, for the first time in my career, we'd, we'd built up a, a decent amount of money in the bank, you know, from... That's from setting up business in 2008 and having to borrow 100 quid off my dad to do the till float uh, for the change and having zero in the bank with all the credit cards maxed out and literally just, you know, having to do all that to actually have money in the bank. And then we just looked at it and thought, God, so we, we, we said to our staff, look, all staff will pay you 50% of your wage for the next four weeks. We don't know how long this is going to go on. And then, uh, you know, by that point, we'll only have enough to pay everyone what was a, known as a final pay. And we'll have to take you all off the books temporarily until we, we know what, what, when we're going to open up. And then, of course, the furlough scheme got announced, which was a godsend for us. So four weeks went past pretty much stress-free. The sun was shining. I think I, I learned how to barbecue every single ingredient ever known to man. Um, and um, we just did that. Had a great time with the family precious time you'll never get back and then after that I just I got really really bored and I thought I need to do something so lo and behold I've got two fantastic area managers that work for me uh, two senior managers and they messaged me and they just said look this is getting really hard for us they're both they both love their work they like to keep busy they're those kind of people they said listen can we not do something so I said right let's start doing a takeaway offer so when I think about the fifth week of lockdown we started something we I have a bar uh, called Bucks Bar which is a fried chicken and rock and roll bar which is a kind of flagship concept if you like yeah. and um, I just said to myself right Let's, let's do a takeaway. And we called it the Buck Down Takeaway. And um, we set that up in the sixth week into lockdown. I had another chef who had come on board quite late in the game and she wasn't eligible for furlough. So those three just did it. And I think on the first day, we got the fright of our lives because there was 700 people wow. queued from, which, by the way, 
you didn't want to do that at that point. I think there was a gathering at that point. Over 30 was illegal. <laughs> and we literally, don't get me wrong, two metre space, but this our unit was in West Regent Street and it went right, the, the queue went right down and then down along St Vincent Street, like hundreds of people. And we were saying to them, look, it's going to be about three, four hours before you get your food. And they were saying, yeah, that's, that's fine. Because no one had anywhere else to go. You know, they're, they're out. They're out, it was a sunny day, they're standing around people, they've been locked up in their houses, they've got nowhere else to go that night, and they were just waiting for their takeaway, you know. So you, you mentioned there, Michael, about the furlough scheme and how integral that was to keeping a lot of your staff on. Do you think the hospitality sector's been supported sufficiently during the pandemic? I think that the, the, that was that was excellent. That really, really helped. That was the major one, if you like. And then, of course, we had Eat Out to help out. So it was kind of strange. As, as I say, we did that takeaway thing. That was week one. But then after that, we got everything in control and it was order online. Someone turns up every five minutes. So we did that. And then by the time we got to be fully operational, it was about the middle of July before we were allowed to fully open. But the only problem that we had there was, as I say, we got open. We had the furlough scheme up to that point. We had Eat Out to help out. Everything was fantastic, and it really felt like there was that idea. You've got all your safety procedures in place. The momentum's there. This is where we're going with this. Um, and since then, it's been kind of setback after setback, to be honest. I mean, two weeks ago, you know, in the space of one week, now, mind, one week, we had um, the rule of eight and three families went to the rule of six and three families. So you get a bunch of cancellations then. Then there was the 10 p.m. curfew. Then there was uh, Nicola Sturgeon, the First Minister, basically stood up and said, I would much rather shut everywhere, but I can't because the money's not there. Then it was students, please don't go to bars. And uh, just yesterday, uh, she stood up in the, the, the briefing and says, we really need to limit our visits to bars and restaurants. And then, you know, we've obviously had this other, the furlough ends, and we have this other initiative where... It's a kind of you can con the government help you contribute to part time hours, but again, that's another cost to um, bars and restaurants. Then, of course, there is my favourite subject at the moment, which is a Scottish only rule of the ridiculous music ban, which is the single most totalitarian, useless, you know, pointless ban on background music across all hospitality, which is just you know can't be explained can't really be enforced it's just a damaging to business damaging to uh, the the restaurant bar experience and it's not based in science so there's things like that where you really think well what are we up against here would you rather we just shut despite all of our efforts uh, to make venues as safe as possible you know yeah. michael i've uh, been watching some of your uh, webcast and it's been very interesting to be perfectly honest been able to to, to hear somebody's opinions of the situation. I think one of the things that, that strikes me about what you'd sort of said, which I think is that element of, do you think it would be safer for people to be in the environment of a hospitality location rather than them being their, their own homes? I think it was yourself that had said, look, we've been trained, we understand, we've got all the health and safety aspects Im implemented. So surely mm -hmm. there's no sense in putting a 10pm curfew and well, of course, I mean, what you have to understand first and foremost is that there's, there's, there's an alarming amount of rhetoric amongst press, 
and politicians, which is kind of spreading. You can see it spreading into public online and social media and things like that, where when people are in pubs, they don't socially distance and they forget what they're doing and they slobber all over each other and they start, you know, it's it's not like that at all. If you book a restaurant, if, if, if you and I went to a restaurant now, Stuart, we would have to go, we'd only be, we'd have to go with our masks, face coverings into the premises We'd sit at a table and you're not allowed to move from that table. You can take your face covering off when you're at the table. And then when you go to uh, the toilet or you go to leave, the face covering goes back on. You're not allowed to socialise with other tables. It's seated table service only. And that's the way it is. And I don't think people have fully grasped that that's what bars and restaurants are like at the moment. Um, uh, you know, it, it was pretty upsetting when the First Minister was asked two days ago, you know, when was the last time you were in a pub? And she said, oh, many years ago. So, you know, yeah. well, have you not maybe looked at them just now to see what they're like? But yeah, yeah, I mean, all the safety measures are in place. People will go to house parties. People will, you know, you, you only have to see it just uh, at the end of lockdown, how busy the parks were with people drinking in them. If you speak to anyone that works in the police, you know, they want the bars and restaurants to stay open because the domestic parties that were going on and police resources getting drawn all over the city was very, very difficult to deal with. I was speaking to two policemen yesterday who were saying exactly that. They were just saying, oh God, this 10pm curfew's a nightmare. They're getting called to train stations. They're getting called to taxi ranks. People are crowding around buskers, having sing songs. And then, of course, you disperse that crowd, but where does everyone else go, you know? If you did have the opportunity to speak directly to the First Minister, what, what would yeah. you like to say if you could keep it clean? Well, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I actually, listen, I, do you know something? See, speaking from a humane level, you know, I know nothing about politics. Can you imagine what it must be like running a political party and being a leader of a country at the, first, at the moment? Yeah. Absolute nightmare. Uh, especially the gene pool that's available towards politicians, you know, you know, what kind of assistance has she got? She looks around and, you know, what, what's around her? You know, it's, it's a very, very difficult situation. But I would ask the First Minister more to give us that more, something I believe in massively in business and in life is you have to give autonomy to people. I mean, for instance, I, I, you know, when, when this pandemic hit, I mean, I believe March, so we had the first case in March, and then in the space of a couple of weeks of just doing everything with no lockdown, no restrictions anywhere, tragically, 40,925 people lost their lives. Okay, that's tragic. Now, since the pubs have opened, the bars and the restaurants have opened up until the end of September. That had only, you know, we're talking about a thousand people have lost their lives. So you would have to say that just with the bars and restaurants set up, operating safely, we have had a massive impact on, on, on getting that number down, uh, despite bars and restaurants opening. Uh, tragically, I believe that the majority of losses of life are still applying to the elderly in care homes and hospitals. But I would, I would first and foremost say to the First Minister, she needs a break. She's, it must be impossible for one human being to, to stay, I mean, I don't know if you saw it yesterday that when they were asking her about, um, you know, children's classes, postnatal classes and things like that. And she, she wasn't really sure about what the regulations were with that. And the sense it's been reduced to five parents and from 10, you know, so you can't have a postnatal class with more than five people and stuff like that. She didn't even know. She just must have this deluge of information from scientists thrown at her on a daily basis. I would say that we need to get to that position where we are trusting the public more. 
you cannot just completely bombard the public with all these more and more draconian strict regulations that you're thinking up on a daily basis almost. You must trust the public. The best example I can think of that is we have now 80 staff. Pre-lockdown, as I say, we had an outbreak where a number of staff fell ill. And that was no joke. You know, that was that was serious stuff. But all of them immediately isolated. Now, we've been back up and running now for, for months because we were doing takeaway. And, you know, all the staff are safe and they're all really sensible. They're all young people. Young people are getting a very bad rep with us. But they're all... They're all at the stage now where if any of them have symptoms, they don't come to work. One last question, I think, because obviously we're really interested to uh, understand, you know, more about your career and so, so on, Michael. But how, how do you think the hospitality sector is going to be changed in the longer term regarding what's happened? Well, it's, I, I think like everything, it'll come back. Um, but you're going to see a massive shift at the moment. There's so many sites that have not reopened. You got a mixture of things. You get basically you got four different types of sites at the moment. You got ones that have opened, ones that have decided not to open uh, and have come gone permanently out of business. Others that are closed and they are considering opening at some point. And then you get the fourth who are the, you're now starting to get businesses that have opened up post lockdown and are shutting down permanently already because they've just hit the wall. So I would say at the moment we're probably sitting at about one third of the licensed premises that we did have. Obviously, the late night industry is completely decimated at the moment. The thing about a, a restaurant or a bar or a club is a lot of it is based on momentum. You know, that place where everyone goes and it's very, very hard to... Pick. That's why we did takeaway because it's quite difficult to, to pick that momentum back up once you've been shut down. You know, people might just, I mean, let, let's say, you, you know, you, you're into fine dining or whatever, then, then you've got places like Glasgow and, you know, all these other good restaurants that have reopened back up and if, you, if you've, that have just newly opened. So that's like somewhere new to go. So if you didn't open up, maybe you've got into the habit, you know, maybe the Regano not opening. And the Regano hopefully will, will come back stronger than ever. But, you know, people get into the habit of going to the Ivy, you know, things like that are very, there's a big, I'm not saying it's impossible, but it just makes things very, very difficult to fight back. And obviously people will be nervous about something like this happening again, you know? Yeah. Um, so you, you, you probably see, will habits change? I think definitely habits, a lot more people are getting takeaway now. Uh, you know, fine dining, dining in has become a thing that was never a thing before. Yeah. So it's going to look very, very different. But I don't have a crystal ball, but it's looking different already is what I'm saying. Michael, just to sort of take you right the way back and hopefully try and move on a wee bit from the COVID experience that we're, we're having at the moment. You were educated in Hutchie Grammar. How did you find, was, your, uh, how did you find your educational experience? I was, I, listen, I've, I, 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 all I can say, me and my brothers went there. I think, I think me and two of my brothers went there. I've got, I'm, I'm one of six but by the time the three of us were finished with private school, the other three never got put into private school because <laughs> only my dad used his money well spent. I didn't get any qualifications. I think the only reason I didn't get chucked out is because I was in the rugby team. Uh, one of my brothers did get chucked out. I kind of ruined it. I'm the eldest, so I kind of ruined it for them. You know, they all talk about that moment when they went into class and it was like calling out the first registration. It was like Paul. Bergson, oh God, another one, right, where are they, you know, so we, we, I wasn't that great, I, I fortunately I managed to get on quite well with my uh, 
Actually, did quite a well-known guy. I don't know if you had after dinner speaker, Sandy Strang, who's yeah. sadly no longer with us. But he was my headmaster, if you like. Oh. And I got on with him. And I think that's the only reason I managed to stay in school. <laughs> um, so, no, I wasn't, I wasn't very good. I sort of started uh, running under-18s nightclubs and stuff like that while I was at school. So I was already sort of focused on the kind of nighttime industry, if you like, while I was there. I think I got three C's in my hires or something. That was me. Terrible. So even from a really, really young age then, you kind of knew that was your path. So did that come oh, as a career yeah. advice or anything like that? No, my, the career advice at Hutchie was, was very much law, accountancy. You know, this is really what you want to do, you know. And I, 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 I couldn't, I, I, have, I had a kind of, a slight attention deficit disorder thing, I think. I can't really, I find it very hard to, you know, I can remember trying to study and having to read a page 50 times before I took it in. Um, so I, I found that all quite difficult. So it was just when I was there, I had a friend, my pal Simon, he was running an under 18s and I went to help him with that. And then as I was sort of leaving school, I sort of started doing my own thing in community halls, not making any money, just getting experience of how to do things wrong, I think, you know. And um, yeah, that was very much it. And then as soon as I was old enough, I, I wanted to go and work in a pub. Yeah. And I went to work in my dad's local when I was 18. Mm-hmm. So that was it money well spent for my old man. <laughs> it sounds very similar. We interviewed or we had a guest on Dominic Capello uh, that runs subculture at the sub club. And uh, the parallels of what you've just talked about is exactly the same. He said he couldn't get rid of, he couldn't get away from school quick enough. But he's, he's, he, he was very much doing the DJing at a very young age. He and Harry. That, that the story was very similar to what you've just described. But yeah. from, from your own perspective, you, what you said in a, a pub, did your family and friends encourage you to, to have career aspirations within the, the nightclub industry? Or, or no, how, how, did, no, how did you get encouragement? No. no, I mean, my dad wanted me to have a job, first and foremost. I think he, he, was, he, was, he was remarried and having a young family, so I think primarily, and this is I'm not, not in a bad way, but, you know, he was like, you know, you, you can get out of the house now, son, you know. And then I moved in with my, my big cousin. Uh, and I still, I was, I was working in a pub, but what it was, I was still dabbling, doing wee promotional things, wee promotional nights, and uh, I was, some, some months I'd lose all my money and I, I wouldn't be able to pay my rent, so I thought, if I get a wee pub job, I can still do the club thing. And then from the club thing, I thought, right, this isn't actually making me any money, but I like the pub game and I maybe want to get involved with a, a, a pub group. And at that point, there was a job advertised for DiMaggio's, who just opened up in East Kilbride. And um, they were, they were uh, advertising for a new pub restaurant because the original concept there, it's got a big bar in it. It was going to be a pub and a restaurant. Uh, it's more of a big restaurant now, but uh, I went there as the bar manager, and then I got I got the restaurant bug, and I could earn money doing tips, and I had a proper job. I think my glad dad was glad I just had a proper job that I could maybe start getting on a managerial ladder and something that I was focused on and and really enjoying, to be honest. And that that was it, steady wage and a job you enjoy. And I really really caught the bug for restaurants. Then I've loved them ever since. So you've obviously had a very varied career, uh, Michael, working in lots of really successful businesses. What, what, yeah. uh, what projects are you most proud of and why? Well, 
obviously, I, I, I was really proud when I got the job. My first proper job was with Tiger Tiger. I don't know if you remember it, but yeah. I got that was a, that was a really exciting company at the time, and everyone kind of wanted the job. So that was the first time I had a job where I thought, wow, that's that's fantastic. You know, this is a proper job. You know, you had salary, good salary, and medical care, and your bupa, and it was just they really looked after you wage review every uh, year bonuses it was it was like that but then you know you, you you get a situation where it was a big corporation and then private equity buyout and all these managers that you looked up to just became surplus to requirements and it was a real wake-up call to the corporate business so i left that obviously setting up 29 uh, with james mortimer uh, he then offered me the job there to look after 29 one up and uh, that was an amazing achievement that was just such a special place yeah. um and uh, i was really really proud of that but that was really working under james's wing watching how he did things learning off him and and and, and all that stuff but then after that setting up my own business proud of it and then i was involved in the the set resetting up of the corinthian club while i still had my own business but I would, I would honestly say that, that probably out of all of them, probably the 29 job, getting that off the ground with James was just an amazing experience, just totally memorable. Um, something that Glasgow had never seen before. And it was just special, you know? You're, you're currently working with uh, Bucks Bar Group, which is your own uh, my, uh, concept, yeah. Michael. What, what, what uh, sort of inspired you in wanting to develop Bucks Bar and Thundercat? Well, the, the, the whole situation is this. So you've gone, I, I'd gone through this process of kind of getting a wee bit more up market as I'd, as I'd gone along in my career, as I say, finish off with 29, which was an amazing, you know, concept and really, really high end at the time. High end steakhouse, first real high end steakhouse in Glasgow. I loved that. And then when I went to set up my own business, I actually had a vision of doing something quite high end. But then I got, I was the last person to get a brewer's loan from Scottish in Newcastle before they pulled everything at the credit crunch. So I was the last operator. Mm -hmm. So I had to, I thought, God, I have to review this. So this is going to be a pizza and pasta place, almost going back to my DiMaggio's route. <laughs> pizza, pasta and cheap cocktails was my kind of idea. And then I did Soho and Miller Street. Yeah. Um, and, you know, times are quite tough. And I had to take another job to keep that business afloat, which was I actually got offered the job to as director of the Corinthian Club to met with the owner, Stephen King. He said, um, let's get that off the ground part time, help us out for a year. And I ended up there for three, two, two and a half years. I was working with them while running my own business. Yeah. Through that, I paid off all my debts, managed to keep my own business afloat, finally left there after two and a half years. And it just came to me one day, I had this going down Lower East Side, and I love New York, and I was fascinated with these places, Lower East Side, New York, which were like pub, but a bar, and what is now known as a kind of dive bar, but had a pubby feel. I've always loved pubs, and people were happy eating or drinking, you know, shots of bourbon at the bar, rock and roll music playing. I'm really passionate about rock and roll music. That's my favorite kind of music. And I just thought, why is there nowhere like this in Glasgow? So this thought was brewing in my head and um, this thought was brewing in my head and, and then we actually, we were in New York and we got stranded in the snow. There was a snowstorm. So me and the wife had taken her there for our, our, uh, our Christmas in January. There was a massive snowstorm 
and we had to phone the babysitters and say, <laughs> we need to stay here another week, damn. You know, so <laughs> that, was, that, was, that was pretty good. And then I was actually, I thought, right, I'm going to start, you know, I'm, I'm stuck here for five days. I, I'm not going to spend a fortune. I'm going to try and eat with the locals. Eat. And I found this amazing fried chicken place called Peach's Hot House. And mm -hmm. it, I tried real fried chicken for the first time. And I thought, oh, my God, why, can't, why can you only get, you know, fast food chain fried chicken or frozen fried chicken in Glasgow? You can't get this. So we went back, researched it, and then this, this concept of a rock and roll bar came to mind. Fried chicken and rock and roll bar. I thought, that just fits fried chicken, rock and roll, bourbon, and uh, the name Bucks. That was it. We, we, we started this brand. To be honest, uh, we opened the doors, and it was, I thought, again, I thought, what the hell have I done? Well, I mean, it was dead. I can remember phoning in one day and sort of saying, well, how much did you take today? And we'd sold one cappuccino all day. <laughs> and I thought, this is just terrible. I didn't have money to finish the shop fit either. I ran out of money, so the place looked a bit barren. We weren't getting the recipe right. And the chicken, it was up and down. We weren't getting good reviews. We got absolutely crucified by Ron McKenna and the Herald. And it was just it was just a bit of a disaster. I was secretly measuring up, you know, Soho was still doing okay. And I'm measuring, I'm measuring up the kitchen for pizza ovens to try and turn it into Soho. And should have just done that in the first place. But I thought, no, I'll stick to my guns. I'll stick to my guns. And cut a long story short, it took about a year and a half. And the place just started flying after that. And I mean, and I mean flying. So we ended up opening another one in Trongate, and um, that's flying as well. Even even during this pandemic, it's doing incredibly well. So we also had the Variety Bar, Suckill Street, yeah. uh, and we had a Little Soho in Jordan Hill. So when the pandemic hit, you know, Little Soho Variety Bar and Soho and Miller Street were all operating on the profit line just. So we had to take action there. So we had to get out clause with a variety bar. We gave that back. The little Soho was being run by my sister-in-law. We signed that over to her. She spent her own money on revamping that, revamping the menu so that we could focus on the three we had. And we made the decision to refurbish Soho on Miller Street to be more in line with Bucks. And that's how we came up with a American Diner Thundercat concept. Where has your motivation emanated from? I think, to be honest, I was thinking about that. I saw your question and we spoke earlier about how, you know, my dad, you know, spent every penny he had, poor soul, um, to get us to that private school. And then I think there was definitely a feeling when I came out of that that I'd let people down. Yeah. And I had to do something, you know, I had to achieve something. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I saw how hard he worked. He's, he's, he's just all his life, a six-day-a-week man, you know. Takes a Sunday off, you know, uh, much to his, you know, he's not happy about it. He'd rather work seven. But, um, you know, it, it, and that, that was it. That was really my motivation. I have to do something here, you know. I don't want to let anyone down. And on that, uh, I, I don't know, do you, do, have you read any motivational books and been inspired by anything like that, Michael? Oh, I, I remember the one that made me want to work for myself. I mean, I told you earlier, I mean, when I was at Tiger Tiger, I was quite happy being a company man. Yeah. You know, I was looking at my directors and the guys in the board and thinking, that's where I want to be. And then new company comes in, they all get sacked and you think, oof, yeah. maybe this isn't the world I want to be in. And I, re I remember reading a book at the time called Millionaire Upgrade. Um, which was actually, I can't remember the who, who wrote it, but it was actually based on a, a talk with Sir Tom Hunter at the time. And at that 
really inspired me. The, the thing I remember about that, there's a bit in it about, um, uh, you know, when you get that fire inside you that you want to work for yourself and a vision and something you really want. And when all that combines for something that you love doing, it's just, it's unstoppable. You can't, you have to quench that desire. And that was me, I really, from that moment, I really just wanted to, I was like, right, I have to have my own group of bars, restaurants. This is what I want to do. Um, I don't want to be part of a big corporate structure. This is what I want to do. I want to be an entrepreneur. Um, and, and then a recent one I've wrote, read uh, most recently that had the biggest, was a brilliant one um, by a couple of Navy SEALs called Extreme Over Ownership. Highly recommend that book. Leif Babin and Jocko Willock. And it's these these uh, Navy SEAL commanders who now consult business. And it's just about owning every single decision you have. Everything that goes wrong, you need to own it. You're, you're, the, you're, the, you're the core of everything. You can't blame anyone, you know. And that really had a, 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 a how, how I look at work, a big impression on me. And, and just on that then, Michael, is that one of the reasons why you determined for yourself that you couldn't work for the corporate world again that you needed to to take entire ownership of a, a, a company for yourself yeah absolutely you know i i know that m me employing people i wouldn't treat them like that i, I don't regard people as expendable the probably the most stressful thing for me about this covid and well the stress was probably the wrong word but the one thing that i'm least happy about is we, we find that stage where we've got this group of amazing chefs and managers and I was so focused on taking them further with me, yeah. you know, that, that we were fully equipped to go to that next stage to open more venues. And this has slowed us down. So that's a frustrating thing at the moment, you know. Sure. But, yeah. So you've obviously got a very, very busy uh, life, Michael. Do you incorporate any daily routines either to manage your physical or mental health? Oh, yeah, definitely, dude. I, I love the... I, I'm a person who enjoys the gym. I don't go to the gym and kill myself. Um, but I, I I really, really enjoy loud music and that hour, three, four times a week where you just switch off. I think that's vital. Uh, and then the rest is really family time. It's, it's so crucial. You know, you just got to make time with your family. Travelling and getting away is, is so crucial for me. Always having something to look forward to. Uh, away from work is really, really important. Well, it's just a couple of days away. It doesn't matter. It's got to be organised. Going back to the sort of business side of things, uh, Michael, do you set yourself visible business goals? And also from a personal side, do you set yourself? Yeah, well, definitely. I mean, the, 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 from the business side of things, to be honest, we had such a long period there where it was just about trying to survive. Um, as I told you, like very, very tough uh, keeping Soho afloat at one point, then it was tough to get bucks to work. But now we're, we're really focused on on where we're at with that business. So the next stage is we've just we've just opened up a cent. Uh, we, we actually post lockdown, pre lockdown, we were in the verge of signing a deal, uh, and it got delayed until just after lockdown, where we've got a central office and production and test kitchen, um, uh, with a view to opening more bucks. So mm -hmm. we are currently focused on getting two more of them opened in Glasgow and um, then we'll be looking at other cities and then we'll, we're, we're entertaining the idea of maybe some point down the line franchising it. Really? Uh, personal goals 
Um, you know, I, I have, I, I would, I've always wanted to spend the latter part of my life traveling. Uh, it's the thing that I, I kind of regret the most is not doing it when I was younger. And uh, I would, I would love to be able to just be in a position to do an awful lot of traveling in maybe 10 years time. And it's all about getting to that stage. I got to the grand old age of 29 and I realised that, uh, you know, from the age of five, I had been in education, you know, or at the end, I was doing three nights a week at, at college and I went, I, I just need to reevaluate and I went travelling around the world and I come back. At oh, yeah. point, I've kind of worked in the charitable sector, but like yourself, you know, my bucket list is definitely get a camper van, see Scotland, see the UK, see Europe, you know, it, it, it's, oh, yeah have to do. Um, it, it, so one of the things that we ask a lot of our guests, and it's not one of the ones we send you, Michael, just to throw you a bit, do you feel as though you are a success? And if not, when do you think that will be? Um, I feel a bit more relaxed now that, the, that this is the first time in terms of the success that the, the plan is, is ahead of me. That's the first time I've ever been in a stage where I go, right, this is the plan now. You know, before it was like just I always, I never felt like a success, you know, even when, I, when I, you know, you start off with the modules and you think, right, when I get to run the biggest unit, I'll be a success. Then you, you get to run Royal Exchange Square, your manager there, and you think, oh God, that's pretty rubbish. So you need to run something bigger and that takes you to Tiger, Tiger, Corinthian, whatever. And then, you know, it, it got to the stage where, oh, I'll be a success with my own restaurant. And then it was like, no, no, I need to have more. So it's only now that I think I've got focused on being a success. The thing with restaurants is it could all disappear tomorrow. We've got three units now and both of them could just fall off the edge of a cliff and that's the reality. So we have to keep the momentum going. So I think I'm now at a stage where I'm focused on becoming a success. Collectively, uh, who would you say the three people are that throughout your life have inspired you the most? And if I can ask you why, they would be that as well. Well, obviously my dad, who's a barber, inspired me to, like when I, when I used to work there at the weekends and I would see him and it was more the kind of customer service thing how it came natural to him so that was that was that was me being you know that was me looking at the customer service side of things and thinking hi that's what I want to do you know albeit I didn't want to go into barbering because I'd have ended up working for him but uh, you know, I, I saw that. So my dad was a big inspiration that way. My granddad was a barber before him. So, you know, I could see how they handle customers and things like that. And I thought there was something really cool about that. It looked really enjoyable, you know, getting banter with everyone on a daily basis and the staff and everything. So very, a lot of parallels between what I do and what they did and yeah. do. And then uh, the, the others, I mean, in terms of other people, you know, you've got to say when I went to work, I went to work for Mario at DiMaggio's. Yeah. You know, when I saw what he'd done and that kind of, and I don't think I'll ever be as psychotically driven as him because he is just an absolute machine. And uh, then, of course, there was there was James Mortimer, who, who had sort of, you know, come from, you know, a difficult background and really worked his way up to do amazing things. And uh, so him, uh, he's probably the person that I worked closest with. So learning off of him was, was, was massive yeah. for me. And then, of course, there's lots of good managers I've worked for who have made a big, big impression on me. Okay, so, Michael, what's the best advice that you've ever been given? Well, the, the bit, I remember there was a guy I worked for when I was at Tiger Tiger, a guy called Paul Reynolds, and it's just something that stuck with me. It's almost like, it's more of a mantra, really. He told me, he, he went on, he was the HR director at the time, he went on to be MD of Yosushi, so he was a pretty big player, but he just 
one day in a talk, he just casually says the five golden rules. Autonomy, and this is in terms of your managers when you're managing people. Give them autonomy, involvement, recognition, talk to people. Sorry, six golden rules. Avoid favourites and solve problems. I'm getting mixed up. He also had the five management styles, but those were the six golden rules. Autonomy, involvement, recognition, talk to people, avoid favourites and solve problems. And I literally, I, I tell that to all my managers and I think about it every day. Oh, sound advice. Uh, what would be the, the advice that you would give to the next generation, Michael? Can I be honest? You know, Please do. I would, I, I, would, I would ask this new generation to be a little bit more assertive and outspoken and follow their own hearts. I don't know what's going on at the moment, but I, I find that they're, I, I, I don't know what it is. And it's, we're in a position right now where completely unintentionally, all of our managers, senior managers are women. And, you know, the young men just don't seem as assertive and as, uh, as, as they were and the women are just overtaking them. So I would, I would ask them to be more assertive and focused and driven. And I don't know why that sort of, you sort of speak to a lot of them and they, they don't seem to know what they want to do. But it's up to them to, you know, they'll be the creators of the next industry. They'll be the creators of the next wave of restaurants or bars or, or any business. It's up to them to make it. So I would, I, would, I, would, I would definitely advise them to do that. Michael, all we can say from Callum and I here at I Was Going to Podcast is uh, thanks very much for your time. You've been a fantastic guest. You've answered all the questions very honestly and we appreciate your time this morning. So thanks very much for joining us. Thanks a lot, guys. Cheers. Thanks right. very much. <laughs>